0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: For our audience worldwide, live from London and New York, joining us now on Bloomberg Television and Radio, I'm pleased to say is the Cleveland Fed President, Loretta Mester, and of course, my good colleague and friend, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, Michael McKee, President Mester, fantastic to have you with us again on this programme. We've appreciated your time through much of 2020 as this economy and this recovery has continued. There is a real worry as we go deeper into winter about what happens with the momentum that we built up through the summer. Let's just start there. President Mester, what do you see and where do you see deceleration that concerns you right now?
2: Well, there's no doubt about it that you said it well. There was a lot of momentum. In fact, the economy had come back stronger in the third quarter than many of us had thought it would. The re- economy just proved to be more resilient than, than we had thought. Um, despair across sectors, um, certainly. Um, some sectors that really need that face-to-face um, kind of... Commerce are not doing well at all. Other sectors are back to their pre pandemic levels or even beyond. I'm thinking autos, I'm thinking housing. So that disparity is troubling. We knew that things were going to slow down um, after the bounce back in the third quarter, and we're seeing that in the data now. Um, I am concerned about the lack of fiscal policy. If you look back and to the beige book, uh, that we had going into the last FOMC meeting. This is the, the compilation of all the contacts that we call um, for prior to FOMC meetings. You'll see they had three concerns. One was what was gonna happen to the virus in the fall. Two, what was gonna, who was gonna be the next president of the United States, so election uncertainty. And three, what was gonna happen with fiscal policy because they were concerned without fiscal policy, things could get a lot worse. So one of those uncertainty has been resolved. The election uncertainty is resolved, but the virus case increase is very concerning. And the fact that we don't have a fiscal package is very concerning. So monetary policy, of course, has been, you know, we've said, we're using our tools. We're gonna to leave things very accommodative. We have interest rates at essentially zero. We have um, asset purchases, and we have our 13 three facilities that are helping to get um, credit flowing to households and businesses. But with the disparate impact of this pandemic, that's where fiscal policy plays a role because fiscal policy can be really targeted to households and small businesses that really need the aid and uh, the states and local governments, which have taken on a lot of the burden here of helping. So I am concerned yesterday we had our Community Advisory Council meeting and these are representatives um, that are really on the ground in low and moderate income neighborhoods. And, and there's a real need for housing, um, affordable housing, food security is an issue that's becoming more a little more uh, problematic as the fall th- has gone on. And the virus, you know, the case numbers are troubling. So you see states um, putting on restrictions and even without states doing it, you can see in the mobility data that we look at that People themselves are being more restrictive.
3: Well, there doesn't seem to be any sign uh, that Congress is going to do anything, at least in the short run here. So does that mean you need to act? You need to do something at the December 16th meeting?
2: Well, I think we're in a good place with our monetary policy because we are very accommodative. I think the need is going to be need to be a fiscal response because they need to be able to shore up the firms and the businesses that are really being hurt by the pandemic. And as I said, you can see some parts of the economy are doing very well, and yet there's a lot of people still out of work. We have 9 million people. We're not even back to where we were in February. So, you know, that disparity is really calls for a fiscal response. And if you continue if you look back at where we were at the start of this, the idea was to come in with strong fiscal policy which happened, that CARES Act Um, response, and with monetary policy, working in tandem, right, to try to get people through that period where the economy really had to shut down because of the surge in the virus to make sure that we weren't overwhelming our medical system. We're kind of back to those levels now. I mean, a lot of the medical systems in different parts of the country now are really under a lot of stress. And the idea that we're asking people to make a sacrifice again and not having that aid in place, I think, is going to be really burdensome on the economy going forward, and certainly burdensome on the families um, that are that are bearing the brunt of, of the small business owners we talk to that are really, tr- you know, having to live now through some restrictions that they don't know whether they're going to come out at the end or whether they're going to have to shut down for good. And I think these things are related in the sense that. If you were a small business owner or a person with a job that has to go into work and you don't have that income security, right? It's hard to follow some of the restrictions. So, you know, you know, you may be taking a little more risk because I don't have a job if I don't go in. So I might have been exposed possibly to someone who had the virus. I'm not showing symptoms. I may go into work. Similarly, a small business rather than, you know, You know shutting down if there's a number of people who might have been exposed they're going to try to stay open because they they don't really have a choice in the sense that if they don't stay open they're going to go out of business and so income support i think is needed for both to help them get through but i also think it affects how well we are at following what the public health officials say are the right things to do to fight the virus and i and i think that troubles me as well
3: Well, that's all well and good, but Wall Street is looking at this and saying, well, we're not going to get anything out of Washington. So we need to get something out of the Fed. Uh, The yield curve is steepened a little bit. Maybe you need to term out uh, your holdings on the balance sheet or maybe do a little more QE. Uh, Do you think either of those things are called for at the December meeting?
2: Well, I mean, I'm not going to prejudge the December meeting. We certainly at every meeting we go in, we talk about where our policy is calibrated and what we need to do to make sure that we're adding accommodation and supporting the recovery. But again, you know, you, you have to look across different sectors and sort of evaluate what tool can it help the most um, to bring up the sectors that are, you know, weakened in this and really affected by this. And it's not clear to me that monetary policy necessarily is the right tool to address those concerns. I grant you that you know right now it looks like the fiscal authorities are not going to come in with another package but you also have to think about what is the right tool to address this and i you know to my mind when you have a disparate um this, such disparity across sectors it's the fiscal authorities and that fiscal policy that is the right tool to use to address these things and so that's what's sort of the 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 tension here is that monetary policy is doing a I think the right thing and keeping things very accommodative yeah. and yet we don't have the other side. And it's not an either or. Like one can't substitute for the, for the other, right? It it the the reason it worked well in the beginning of the pandemic is they were working together. They weren't substitutes. They were reinforcing one another.
1: President Messler, one thing you could do, obviously, and I appreciate you're not here to prejudge the meeting, although we would love you to. One question that's been asked from people in fixed income markets at the moment is whether you would extend the average maturity of your bond buying. I don't expect you to give me a decision on that, but could you tell me if you see the benefits in doing something like that?
2: Well, I mean, as you know from the the, uh, great financial crisis and the great recession, right, we went in and bought long term assets to try to push down. Right. The long end of the yield curve in terms of the yields there. And that's a tool of monetary policy. When we started the asset purchases in this environment, it was more about market dysfunction that we were seeing in the Treasury market um, and the mortgage-backed security market. So the the actual catalyst um, was about that dysfunction. So we were buying across the curve. Um, of course those purchases also added accommodation, so they had a two, two twofold effect. Um, but you're right in the sense that there are things like, you know, looking at, um, the maturities that we're buying, um, clarifying our forward guidance on the asset purchases, um, can be helpful. You know, I'm a fan of, you know, as clear communications as we can make them, um, so that people understand our reaction function. So there are things like that um, that certainly would be under consideration. um, And that's, that's, you know, going forward, we're going to have those discussions at our
1: meetings. Just because we're tight for time, is that something you would discuss at the next meeting? Because we do understand the reaction function around interest rates very clearly now. We don't on asset purchases. Is that something you need to clarify?
2: Well, I certainly am always a fan of clarifying our communications. And you know, at every meeting we talk about our communications, that's part of what comes out of the meeting, that statement that you see. So that's gonna be a fundamental part of any FOMC meeting. And I can't you know, say what will come out of the meeting, but I do think that it is an important part of how are we communicating our policy to the markets and do the American public understand why we're taking the actions we're taking um and including all our tools
3: you're doing a financial stability conference today the last senior loan officer survey showed that banks were reporting weaker demand for business loans and there were weaker demand and tighter standards for commercial real estate do we have a developing credit problem in this country
2: i don't think so far but i think that that's one of the things when you're thinking about a resilient financial system it's twofold. It's obviously you don't want your banks to fail, you want them to be robust um, through economic downturns. But you also want the banks to be there lending through the downturn. And as you know, we took some actions um, early in the pandemic to try to ensure that the banks were there um, and able to lend um, to their to their customers and to households and, and businesses. So Those are those actions were taken to ensure that credit could flow and that the banking system was an important way of getting that credit flowing. So, you know, they're going to be looking, of course, at credit risk. And so far, what's been, I think, another strength of this economy is that losses and credit losses have not shown up at the banks um, as much as they might have. And so that's a positive in this economy is that we don't see the kinds of things that we might have expected to see, um, given the shock and the deep shock the pandemic was. But we want to make sure that the financial system stays robust and resilient so that lending can continue yeah. to go.
1: President Mester, always gracious with your time, and we appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll catch up again soon before your end. With us
0: now, with immediate and essential labor perspective, Patrick Foy, MTA Chairman and Chief Executive Officer. Pat, I think you're lying to me. I'm going to cut to the chase. In no way do I think you're only going to cut 9,300 or 9,400 employees. What's the real number out six months if you don't get support from the federal government?
4: Well, Tom, uh, 9,300 is the number of operating personnel that would be cut. We would obviously cut uh, headquarters. uh, Headquarters uh, staffing is down 20% from 2019. Uh, There's more to cut there. Those people aren't involved in uh, uh, delivery of services, but we will be cutting. We've taken $2.8 billion out of the MTA's cost structure over the last couple of years. Uh, I would expect in 2021, uh, apart from the service reductions, will take uh, seven to eight hundred million dollars. Additionally, we're going to be constantly cutting uh, and, and, and reducing our costs uh, because that's the that's the right thing to do. And the service reductions are on top of that. And the service reductions uh, are staggering. Will affect every New Yorker, every one of our employees. And, and the Rudin Center at NYU says it'll cost the region up uh, four hundred and fifty thousand jobs and destroy about $65 of regional
0: GDP. Pat, what's so important here is the conflation of variable and fixed costs. And you've got all sorts of realities, including complexity, including union relationships, etc. What do we most get wrong about the fixedness of your variable costs?
4: Excellent question, Tom. And I'll distinguish between subways and buses, right? Uh, Subways uh, have extensive fixed uh, capital costs that has to be maintained. And for instance, if you reduce service on a subway line from 100% to 80 to 60 to 40, you you may be able to uh, cut the number of train operators and conductors. None of this is anything anybody at the MTA wants to do. But the men and women who maintain the tracks, maintain the trains, communications, power, uh, et cetera, We'll have to maintain that uh, sub- subway line, regardless of whether ridership and the number of trains is 40 or 50 percent or 80 uh, percent of normal. That is not the case uh, in, in, in a bus in a bus system because you don't have that great fixed cost, and that is and obviously the operating leverage also associated with increases in ridership, increases and declines in, in ridership. You're spot on.
5: So, Pat, a lot of people may be listening to this program from Des Moines or Cleveland or El Paso, and they're looking at a Metropolitan Transit Authority that has $46 billion of debt, and they wonder, why should we be paying for the situation that currently is at hand? Albeit, this is an extraordinary situation, but why should it fall on them? What would you say?
4: So Lisa, I'd I say a bunch of things. For instance, you mentioned Cleveland. There's mass transit in Cleveland. There's mass transit in Austin, Texas, in, in Atlanta, in Washington, D.C., in Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, across the in New Orleans, and across the entire country. Blue states, red states, mass transit is incredibly important. It happens to be that the MTA carries about 40% of mass transit riders. So obviously, we're a larger uh, operation with larger financial challenges. But every mass transit agency in the country has been affected by the pandemic, not to the same level of the MTA, given our ridership. Uh, You know, on a typical day pre-pandemic, we would carried 7.5, 7.6 million customers, largest in in North America. But every one of the transit agencies in the United States is feeling the same pressure and will have to take steps not unlike those that we're talking about. No one at the MTA wants to make these service cuts because that's not what New York needs. To, to feed uh, the economic recovery, and, and it's, not, it's not great service for first responders, essential employees, and our other customers. And
5: Pat, there's a question also about a, a spiral, downward spiral, for public transportation, that if you don't have fast enough, reliable enough service, that people stop using it, and it just sort of begets uh, even less service and fewer people using it. At what point does the MTA enter that death spiral that could have an even more profound effect on the entire region?
4: Look, I, I think it's an excellent question, and the Rudin Center's uh, analysis took that into account. But you're right, Lisa, if we have to increase, for instance, headways, the time between subways and buses on weekends to say 15 or, or 20 minutes, a lot of New Yorkers are gonna determine that to get to the, to the job, to school, to a medical appointment or whatever they're doing, that it doesn't work for them any longer, and it does, it does feed on its excel, its success. Success in mass transit and growth in mass transit increases ridership. Cutting it back also will cause some of our customers to say, you know what, it's not worth it. We won't get their revenue. We won't get their service. And that's just a terrible place for any transit agency to be.
0: Pat Foy, I would assume in your esteemed career, you've seen the death of New York City. Somewhere between three and five times, you know, and and folks, I think a lot of people that know me know I was screaming after 9-11 that New York City would not die. I believe a mayor of New York had a little bit to do with that thought. Pat Foy, everybody's moving to the suburbs. What do you say to them?
4: Well, look, not everybody's moving to uh, the suburbs, Tom, but here's what I'd say. Cities like New York and London and Bombay, Mumbai and others have survived Have gone through pandemics in the past. Obviously, the 1918-1919 flu in the United States, which obviously had a significant impact on, uh, on New York City. The, the, the movement to urbanization across the entire globe is a global phenomenon. Uh, The uh, rise of cities as uh, centers of talent and intellectual capital. New York City will be back. I'm bullish on New York City. This is a particularly tough time. 2020 and 2021 are going to be tough years. But obviously with the great news from Pfizer and Moderna and and the uh, vaccines and the offing, that will be terrific news. New York City will be back after getting through the dark days of 20 and 21. No question in my mind.
0: Mr. Foy, thank you so much. Patrick Foy with the MTA, he's chairman and chief executive officer. Let's get right to it here on The Pandemic, and this is definitive. There's lots of people managing the message right now. That is something Dr. Jonathan Quick has never done. He's with the Rockefeller Foundation and is definitive in thinking about epidemics. His book, The End of Epidemic, is truly the Bible on these modern processes. Dr. Quick, thank you so much for joining us. How does a pandemic end? You and I really haven't lived one. I mean, there was a cholera in 67,
6: I recall. But actually, how does a pandemic end? So, I mean, it's basically like a forest fire, and it either ends when it runs out of wood, which is us humans, or it ends when there is a, um, a response, um, basically uh, dumping water all over it, which is what a uh, safe and effective vaccine would do. And, and those are the two ways that it, that it can end. And right now, the good news is that we have seen, um, I think, just remarkable news on the vaccine side. Um, But at the same time, uh, we're letting that that forest fire run uncontrolled in this country. And Dr. Quick, I
0: say this with great respect for all watching and listening that has suffered this personally, particularly the essential workers and those that have lost older loved ones. Is the reason it maybe doesn't feel as angry as April or may because we've killed off so many old people, is our pandemic demographic now different than it was in spring?
6: Well, it, it is different than it was in the in the spring in the sense that um, overall we're seeing a uh, f- fewer deaths per case because it has become uh, a pandemic across all all generations and we're seeing more uh, of the youth, but. I mean the reality is that we still have tens of millions of people who, who are at risk and um, I think we need to understand the consequences of basic the inaction because it's it's not just the fact that we're on we're on a pathway to be to be um, to hit a death uh, a death of of nearly a half million people by, well, over 400,000 people by March, if we don't do something. That's one part of it. The other is millions of people who uh, who have had COVID who are gonna have the lingering uh, consequences. Uh, we saw with the SARS, the first COVID that went global in 2003, and we're seeing it again today, that perhaps a quarter of the people have lingering disability. Not to mention the fact that letting this go out of control, um, it, it, it's it, people are not going to feel safe going out. They're not going to feel safe in schools. So um, I, I think we have a real challenge by just letting it uh, run wild. And and. And and we know what to do, and it doesn't involve crashing the economy.
5: Well, hold on a second, because you say about the long-term effects. You talk about how it's not just the deaths. It's that the prevalence could have uh, ramifications far beyond even our comprehension now. We have a, a quarter of a million deaths here in the United States. The real issue is we don't even know where people are getting the virus at this point. Has track and trace died at this point, given how pervasive COVID has become?
6: Yeah, I mean, the track and trace at this point is going to be uh, less important in the majority of places that that are having it. It, That's not true, though, in in more focused um, settings uh, like schools and workplaces where we still have some opportunity. But overall tracking, it's the key thing is a handful of of core uh, actions everybody mask restrict or suspend dangerous indoor places limit gatherings over 10 stay home if symptomatic businesses provide leave and government help support business i mean It's not complicated and we can't choose. It's not like it's a menu. You choose one or the other. What we know clearly from 1918 and again now is doing all of these things together until we have bent the curve and we can do it and we can do it without crashing the economy.
5: Dr. Quick, this is an essential point because some people will look around and say the death rate is low. Even when we have a pervasive virus, why not let it go rampant? Why shut down my social life? Why increase the incidence is of, uh, of depression and the widening gap and inequality and a whole host of other uh, issues. What would you say to those people about some of the restrictions that have been coming out, basically saying these are harming us more than helping us?
6: So I, I think the, the thing is to be Focus with our with our restrictions, and and recognize that yes, there is going to be some some uh, short term individual sacrifice, um, but it's going to be it's going to pay off for the long term collective welfare, because we're only accelerating. I I mean, when you when you're getting up to um, to death rates of of um, uh, collect uh, cumulative death rates of four hundred thousand, but. it's the total effect of that on society so it's really um taking a short-term uh sacrifice for the collective long-term benefit and really it, concerning I mean,
1: numbers yeah. doctor we've got to leave it there unfortunately appreciate your time sir thank you dr Jonathan okay. quick there of the rockefeller foundation we appreciate your time and look forward to getting you back soon Here's the way it works,
0: John, and this is true of everything in uh, economics when you have long, smooth curves. We've had a huge recovery in claims and down to a critical point where whatever moving averages you're using buttress up right against the data. The key thing is, John, we are there right now as we wait to see what claims do in December and January. That's a good precursor to bring in Nathan Sheets of PGM. He is our fixed income chief economist, writing definitive international work for Citigroup a few years ago, and we're thrilled to have Nathan Sheets with us from PGM this morning. Nathan, you know those curves, those Euler functions. Michael Woodford owns a high ground on this. We've got smooth curves showing us getting to recovery. Do you believe it?
7: I think the uh, the road to recovery is likely to be quite rocky, unfortunately. And I think as was highlighted by uh, the claims data this morning, the uh, virus and the restrictions that are being put in place to fight the virus are likely to take a bite out of economic activity over the next, say, three or four months. Now I think the economy is more flexible than it was in the spring, and we've learned how to respond to restrictions. Uh, uh, more uh, efficiently and smoothly, but still, I think, save for the United States, Q4 and Q1 growth are going to be struggling to to stay positive. If we get a small positive number, we should consider ourselves fortunate. So it is true that in the long run, once we have this vaccine, we hit that smooth curve that you described. And I think that the news on the vaccine is, is very encouraging but especially without fiscal stimulus the next few months are going to be uh, challenging for the macro economy.
5: Nathan, I got to say, I'm sort of surprised at the market response to these jobless claims that came in worse than expected. It follows a trajectory, including uh, the retail sales we got earlier this week that also came in weaker than expected. The the wave that we are seeing of this pandemic is hampering economic activity more than economists are currently projecting. Do you think the scarring, the longer lasting effects of this uptick in the, The virus counts. Do you think that it's going to have a deeper effect on the economy than people are currently giving credit to for 2021 and beyond?
7: The scarring question is one that's uh, absolutely critical to think about. What are the longer term impacts of this episode on the labor market and worker skills? on the small business sector and the capacity of businesses to produce going forward. And importantly, on household and corporate uh, balance sheets and the willingness of of folks to to spend going forward. Now, on balance, my sense is that what's likely to determine uh, the scarring, most most importantly, is how long it takes to get the, the vaccine. And if we get that vaccine in the middle of the year, then I think that the scarring, there will be some that will be more limited. If, if somehow the, the vaccine disappoints, uh, particularly I don't think now the science of it is going to disappoint. Those results seem really strong. But there are still serious questions about distribution and about whether people will actually get the vaccine. So if the vaccine doesn't do what we expect, then uh, I think the recovery will be much slower and the scarring is likely uh, to be more intense.
1: And Nathan, so many of us were so wrong about how quickly the U.S. economy would bounce back, and it's bounced back really quickly. How do you model the second shock, though? When an economy goes through one shock, like the one we got back in March through April into May, how do you model the second shock when it begins to bubble away again before our very own eyes going deeper into winter?
3: One
7: of the critical aspects of allowing the economy to absorb the first shock as successfully uh, as it has was the powerful fiscal stimulus that Congress approved. And I think going through this uh, second shock, this second uh, uh, phase of intense restrictions, what with what seems to be essentially no fiscal stimulus. And as you were discussing, some of the uh, other, Key safety net measures like the renters moratorium rolling off the end of the year. Uh, if that's where we are, I think the economy is likely to be uh, more exposed. You know, on the other hand, uh, as I said, I think the that that we're learning how to deal with this situation and we're learning how to respond to lockdowns more more efficiently than we were before. And so it's a competing dynamic, but without stimulus and without Congress acting on some of these safety net measures, it's going to be a rough ride into the vaccine.
1: Nathan, many people agree with you. Let me tell you that. Nathan Sheets of PGM.